Hi, I'm Sarah Kenna from Company Matters, Link Group's company secretarial and corporate governance team. In this episode, we play back highlights from our recent AHEAD event. During the session, our panel of guest speakers spoke about corporate governance highlights of the year so far. They also discussed what to expect in the second half of 2022. AHEAD is a community for governance professionals to discover new trends, ideas, discuss industry issues and connect with like-minded people. If you'd like to learn more about future events and join in, I'll leave a link in the description. It's free to join and we're always open to new members. I'm now going to pass you over to Cathy Kong, who will introduce the guest speakers. I hope you enjoy. Welcome to the HEADS Corporate Governance Mid-Year Review. There are a number of topics we will be discussing today with our panel of expert speakers. So let's begin. My name is Kathy Kong and I am Managing Director of Company Matters and the HEAD Programme Sponsor. The panel of expert speakers with me today are Maureen Bresford, who is Head of Corporate Governance at FRC. Prior to joining FRC as its Head of Corporate Governance, Maureen was Head of Company Law and Reporting at Day and was responsible for a team who informed company law policy and supported ministers on a number of legislative changes. Whilst being seconded to the FRC in 2017, Maureen worked on the review of the UK Corporate Governance Code and introduced the weights principles for large private companies. Our second expert speaker is a member of our senior team, Courtney Menzies. Courtney is an experienced lawyer in the corp and the governance profession with over 20 years experience in a range of sectors. Prior to joining Company Matters as one of our senior managers, Courtney was Deputy Company Secretary of British Airways. And prior to BA, she has operated at senior level for corporate providers and in-house co-sec teams. Third speaker is our very own Head of Industry at Link Group, Jay Baker. Jay works closely with market peers, issuers, clients, and central governments and other stakeholders Jay is also the immediate former chair of the Governance Institute's Registrar's Group and is an industry-recognized expert in the post-trade environment. So, Jay, turning to you first, how has the 2022 AGM season so far compared to the last two years? And if you could, and I can, I, can I just follow up with another question? And have we seen any changes continuing post-pandemic? Well, thank you, Cathy, and good morning, everybody. Well, uh, proxy voting has definitely changed. Um, if we go back to 2021, we saw uh, a reduction in proxy appointments down from 63, 64% of capital voting in 2020 to a little under 57% in 2021. So a big reduction there. This year, though, we've, we've already seen that rise to almost 70% of capital uh, voting. So back really to, to pre-pandemic levels. Um, but more than that, behaviours are changing. So in 2020, for example, almost 50% of all proxy uh, appointments were done on a physical form, um, but we saw that changing as well. So in 2021, um, that was down to 44%. Uh, and then already in 2022, we've seen a massive reduction of those physical forms, now only down to about a fifth of, of, all, of all proxy appointments coming in in physical form. So um, what we have seen is a big shift now to electronic uh, and electronic is 
definitely now the main route to, to proxy appointments, which is, I think, where all the corporates and issuers uh, would want to see the trend moving to. Um, but that's also translating over to how AGMs are held, as more and more uh, companies are, are providing a digital option for the AGM. Um, of course, that was that was helped by the temporary legislation uh, during the pandemic, which was accelerated by demand. Uh, in many ways, the UK is, is fast catching up with the rest of the world on a digital meeting. And if we look at what Australia have done, which is where our parent company uh, is based, uh, hybrid and virtual meetings are, are very much a stay of the AGM scene and is becoming more so in the UK. Uh, America is also uh, way, way ahead of, of where we are in, in uh, the digitalisation of, of the AGM and the, the shareholder meetings generally. So big changes since the pandemic and changes in the right direction. We, we saw that curve go down and we've seen it go right back up again to pre-pandemic levels. So definitely, definitely in the right trending uh, route and a shift to the digital. So, yeah, good news story. Thanks for that. Uh, I mean, definitely the, the whole electronic and hybrid is the way uh, forward. Um, with that happening, um, just touching on voting level and, you know, um, within our client portfolio uh, of companies who've held their AGM so far, it's been, you know, uh, there's some indication that voting level uh, a little bit on the low side. So what could be what could we do better or, or issuer could be uh, do uh, more or better in terms of engaging with their shareholders to increase voting? Yeah, uh, that's a that's a really tough question, actually, Kathy, because, you know, in, in my view, there does appear to be some shareholder apathy in voting. Um, and I suppose we have to ask, why is that? And I've often said that do retail shareholders feel that their voices aren't heard and their vote doesn't really count? And, and perhaps that's that's true. Uh, and, and they do feel like that. And I'm sure that is right. Um, but technology is providing better access uh, for the retail shareholders. Um, there's the hybrid and virtual meetings, uh, meaning shareholders can attend remotely, of course. And we've, and we've just talked about that. Um, but at Link, for example, we've developed an engagement app called Linkboat Plus. That doesn't just provide a simple route to proxy appointments, but it, but it also includes like a one-stop area for shareholders to gather or, or connect to their information. And the, the, the app also links into investor relations sites, for example. It pulls down the RNS announcements. There's a document repository and even in integration to various map applications. So if a shareholder is walking down the street, doesn't know how to get to the meeting venue, he can, he can use the app to, um, to, to, find a way, to find a way there. And not only that, the app provides access to the hybrid or the virtual meeting. So we're at a point now where engagement with the shareholder can be done much more easily in one form, in one place, without the need to, to use disparate systems and, and uh, disparate routes into to engage. And these developments, in fairness, I think will, will make access so much easier, um, but not just for the shareholder. I think for the for the companies too because it will provide additional communication channels to the retail shareholder with push messaging maybe sms messaging uh, and and other things as we develop um, and perhaps understand how we can better use social media for example um, to to engage with to engage with shareholders so there's digital options coming down the track and i mean that that actually if you don't mind that 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 leads me on to another question, and um, if you don't mind, Kathy, I'm going to I'm going to pass one over to Maureen because I think it it links in quite nicely. 
you know, we've got the um, we've got the shareholder meeting guidance soon to be published uh, by the FRC. Um, so, so again, one for Maureen. Maureen, are you able to give some background on 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 that meeting guidance and and an expected publication date? And I think that will that will help determine what the feeling and what what people's expectations are going to be for the future. Thank you, Jay. Yes, yes, I, I think I can give you some more information. Um, just a little bit of background. Um, we started working on this probably 18 months ago, and we've got a wide range of stakeholders um, uh, discussing guidance with us from the retail shareholders right through to GC100. Um, so we're trying to get agreement from a disparate group on, on a, some, some fairly basic guidance, but the guidance um, we hope will be out in July. Uh, the aim is to cover a number of issues. So Jay talked about technology. So how to kind of engage with technology, some good practice that, that companies might want to think about in terms of using that technology. I think it was great to hear that Jay's app, you know, we're really supportive as like a one-stop shop approach, but also for companies to, to take, take forward better engagement with uh, all shareholders, not just the, you know, the, the large shareholders, but those retail shareholders as well. So the guidance is split into to three elements, really. Um, suggestions on what to do before meetings, during meetings, and after meetings, with a definite emphasis on this engagement with your shareholders throughout the year. Um, the AGM still being almost at the pinnacle of that, but also bringing all that information that companies have learned throughout the year to that AGM um, at the end of the year and, and kind of feeding back all the different views that have been made and, and making it an AGM that's not just about the business of the day, but a little more, bit more uh, interested on issues that, you know, aren't normally there, uh, aren't normally discussed. Um, so, yeah, the guidance, hopefully in July, um, fingers crossed. That's, that's probably all I can say at the moment. We're still getting it signed off. Oh, Molly, Maureen, not even a tiny little hint before even the sign off, Maureen. Just a I said July. I did say July. <laughs> Mid-July. Right. There you go. <laughs> well, uh, next Friday is July, July the 1st. Can we get something by then? <laughs> no. Okay, thank you for that. Um, so... Just, just looking at it from the, the, the perspective of the COSEC, and this is a question to you, Courtney. Given that more companies have changed the article to allow for hybrid AGMs, what are the practical considerations that COSEC would need to be aware of when they are planning the AGMs? Well, during the pandemic, temporary relaxations to meeting attendance requirements were introduced, um, and those overrode the provisions in companies' articles relating to meeting attendance, um, and they essentially allowed closed meetings. But as relaxations ended, uh, many companies wanted the flexibility to be able to hold virtual and hybrid meetings going forward, um, so they made amendments in their articles to be able to do this. It's also worth noting that although hybrid meetings are permitted, um, there have been some questions over uh, whether UK companies can hold purely virtual meetings, um, including whether the Companies Act requires an actual place of meeting. Um, so purely virtual meetings are not recommended, although there's been one really well-known example of a purely virtual meeting being held. And if you're into your fashion like I am, it was Jimmy Choo. So if you want to go ahead and plan a hybrid AGM, uh, firstly, you should check your company's articles. You should see what the provisions allow for. 
the CGI, formerly ICSA, has confirmed that companies can legally hold hybrid meetings, even if their articles don't specifically uh, provide for it, um, as long as the articles don't specifically require physical uh, presence in a single location or actually prohibit electronic participation. Then I would make sure that your AGM notice contains all the relevant information, including making it clear that the meeting will be hybrid and uh, how to attend and vote virtually. Um, then I would look at attendance. So who will actually be attending? Um, how many shareholders and speakers will you need to allow for and where are they located? Uh, how will you register attendance? Uh, how will you verify shareholders? If you're expecting minimal attendance, you also might want to think uh, about whether it's actually cost effective to hold a hybrid meeting, given the equipment you'll need. Um, then I look at the venue. You'll need to choose a venue which has both the space and the equipment to allow for um, equal participation for both in-person and virtual attendees. Um, and finally, you might want to consider what your actual reasons are for wanting to hold a hybrid meeting. Is it actually likely to encourage better participation? Um, so a large proportion of our clients have amended their articles to allow for hybrid AGMs, but actually the take up this year has been minimal and we've seen that it's mostly been down to the costs involved. Yeah, I think I'm, 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 I'm sort of there with you as well. And um, actually the company that I was a group co-secretary of um, was actually one of the first to hold a hybrid AGM in the UK. I think across the world, someone else beat me to it. <laughs> So that's 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 actually quite interesting. And hopefully, I mean, I think the concept is great. I think the cost implication is something that the company needs to bear in mind. So now I'd like to move on to um, the FCA's rule, uh, rules on relate, uh, diversity related disclosures. And um, again, this is coming over to you, Courtney. 89% of FTSE 100 companies had met the diversity related uh, target by the end of 2021. And just over half of FTSE 250 companies have met that target 55%. That still leaves a percentage of companies that are choosing to explain rather than comply. So what are some of the reasons that you've seen that companies would choose to explain rather than comply? Well, that's right. There still are a large, there is a large percentage of companies that are choosing to explain rather than to comply with the new targets. And many companies that we've spoken to take the view that where there's a limited pool of talent, especially in certain industries or smaller companies with smaller boards, it's not always possible to meet the targets. Um, some companies have actively tried to attract a more diverse set of candidates, but have been unable to do so so far. So these companies will need to have robust explanations and strong succession plans in place to address the issue. And, and I, I guess it is still sort of early days um, in current, definitely in you know, this current uh, reporting season. Um, but how are shareholders and proxy voting agencies reacting to this response from companies you know, who are new to the rules so far? Well, we've heard talk in boardrooms that there are rumblings from proxy voting agencies and institutional investors that they plan to take these targets very seriously. And where the targets are not met, they will vote against the chair of the nominations committee or indeed even the chair of the company. Um, so proxy voting agencies have already begun to take this stance. For instance, uh, both ISS and Glass-Lewis have said in their 2022 proxy voting guidelines that there is an expectation for FTSE 350 companies, excluding investment companies at the moment, uh, for the board to comprise at least 33% of uh, women in line with the recommendation of the Hampton-Alexander review. 
Um, further, they expect all listed companies will have appointed at least one gender diverse individual and one from an ethnic minority background. And they are expecting the board to be reflective of a company's employees and the location that it conducts its business activities in and its key stakeholders. Um, and where boards fail to do this, they will expect to see clear and transparent disclosures um, as to why they've been unable to do it. And the other proxy voting agencies have expressed similar guidelines. And I would expect all of them and institutional investors um, to start taking a, quite a hard line on diversity in the future. And as we've seen in this year's AGM season, the proxy voting guidelines really do sway the votes of investors. It's, it's tough out there, isn't it? Being, being uh, a board of um, you know, uh, directors and what they need to do, I think the concept is great. Um, but actually to achieve the target is, is pretty challenging. So what do companies need to be aware of when, when they are planning to meet these new targets? Are there any middle grounds that they, they can, you know, um, again, is a sort of the, 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 um, the explain element of it? Well, as we said, not all companies will be able to meet the targets or at least not straight away. Um, so where the composition of a board doesn't align with the targets, companies will be expected to provide adequate disclosures to address it. So it might be that a board consists of four or fewer directors, uh, where a company um, discloses a credible plan um, to address the gender or ethnic imbalance on the board uh, within a defined time frame. And that is key. It has to be within a defined time frame or where the company otherwise demonstrates its commitment to diversity uh, through a robust succession plan for its board and its executive committees, or in other exceptional circumstances. I mean, there are things you can't plan for, like a director resigning unexpectedly, or if a company um, has recently uplisted and is still playing catch up. So the key is that companies either need to meet the targets or disclosures need to be meaningful. And I would absolutely recommend using the toolkits at the back of the Parker Review and the Hampton Alexander Review as a starting point. They're really useful. Good tips. I mean, basic tip, but good tips. It's good to be, to remind us of it. Uh, moving over to Maureen. And Maureen, it is great to have you here with us today. So your key area at the FRC is all about the UK Corporate Governance Code. I understand that your team assesses the reporting against the code each year. Can you give us a little or any insight into what you are looking for and perhaps what you have seen so far this year? Yeah, so every year we do a review of reporting. We select um, 100 companies randomly from the FTSE 350 plus a few small caps and we assess them against the code requirement, application of the principles and the um, uh, compliance with the provisions and we produce our report generally in November each year. Um, and it's interesting to hear what Courtney was just saying about um, explanations, because it's something that we look at every year. Um, what we've said in the past and what we continue to say is, you know, companies should not comply with the, with the code if there's a good reason to do so. So non-compliance is a good thing if you can be transparent about it and you can give an effective explanation. But quite often what we find um, is that companies don't fully comply or try to hide non-compliance by saying in their statement, yes, we've actually complied with everything. And then you might look at, you know, the chair and he's been, been there for like 10 years or something like that, which is more than the nine years that we recommend without an explanation. So what we've been doing for the last two years is really trying to get companies to kind of work on those explanations and, and up the transparency. 
I'm pleased to say that we're starting to see that over the last three years there's been improvement in both companies saying actually we've not complied and these are the reasons why still quite a little a lot of work to be done on that uh, explanation piece you know as Courtney said the timing why what you're going to do what the mitigating factors are all those things and there's some guidance that we put out two years ago on a, what makes a um, good explanation so take a look at that as well if you're interested I can send links other areas that we're looking at, particularly this year, um, we're looking at uh, engagement with uh, shareholders. And this kind of links into what I was saying about the AGMs, trying to raise that um, engagement throughout the year um, and to report back on that explanation in the annual report. Um, the um, Corporate Governance Code does say that, say that the chairs should be involved in that engagement and committee chairs should be if it's a material issue. Um, now, We've not found any committee chairs in our 100. We've done 84 companies so far and not one disclosure of a committee chair being involved in engagement other than a handful of REM uh, chairs being engaged in shareholder engagement. Um, which I find somewhat strange. We were talking about diversity. So where's the NOMCO chair in all this? <clears throat> Audit committees, there are always key issues around that as well. Um, and the SID, we've only found 12 uh, disclosures of a SID being involved in any engagement with their shareholders. And I think that's telling us a, a bit of a story. Maybe, you know, companies just leave it all to their, um, their, their, their teams that do that engagement. But, you know, investors quite often say to us, we really want to see these people at key points during the year and we can't get access quite often. It's maybe one or two of the bigger investors that do it. But, you know, the smaller ones are there too and they can be quite impactful as well. Uh, at voting times. Yeah. So we're looking at shareholder engagement. We're also looking at stakeholder engagement and you know that's improving. When we started this three years ago, uh, companies would generally just talk about a little bit of employee engagement. We're seeing much more disclosure around um, engagement with customers, engagement with suppliers, workforce is obviously the key one, especially post-pandemic. So we're seeing good processes, good practices emerging. What we're failing to see is that impact. So there's a lot of disclosure saying the company did X or Y, or we delivered a seminar, or we did a, uh, a piece of engagement with a, a, a key team, but we're not saying what's happening to that. You know, Are any of these issues getting back to the management team? Are they getting back to the board? What's the feedback to those stakeholders? So that's where more work is needed. We want that feedback loop. We want to see the impact and outcomes of that engagement going forward. And the other areas that we're looking at are risk. And we might talk about that a little bit more. And we're going to talk about trans transformation, but we look at risk. Um, and you know, companies are asked to look at their, um, their internal controls processes and review their effectiveness. And every company does that, but they don't tell the reader how they reviewed that effectiveness, who was responsible for that, what the outcome was, what action they might be wanting to take. So we quite often get a blind statement said, yes, it was reviewed, all is fine. And we need a lot more disclosure around that. And as we talk about you know, where we're going in the future, that's a key area that we'll be looking for, towards. Um, and just one final comment about uh, nominations committees. We Last year, we felt that nomination committees were almost the Cinderella of the committees almost, um, you know, getting very little time in an annual report. Succession plans were seldom revealed. And again, back to diversity, what's happening there? 
Um, so the team, and I plan to do a little bit more work on that over the next six months to see if we can get some good guidance out there for nominations committees going forwards to help with this diversity issue, but also, you know, making them more relevant um, today and not being kind of pushed out by REM and audit. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I get that. And um, just just on when you're talking about shareholder engagement, you know, so like committee chairs engaging with the shareholders, isn't it also typical that actually nom- the nomination chair is also the chairman? So I think from a reporting perspective, and I'm just looking at it from a COSEC, in our mind, it, they have that. So when we're saying, yeah, the chairman, that he's the, the nomination uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, chair as well. So I think there's an element of that already being engaged as part of that. But I understand Definitely, it's always satellite on the Remco chair just because of the the, the issues, isn't it, around, you know. Um, so just, just moving on when you're talking about risk and, and the uh, transformation. So the government has issued its response to the consultation on the future of audit and corporate governance, which will have an impact on, uh, you know, a number of different market participants, most notably, um, you know, company directors, auditors and professional bodies, as well as changes to the code and other, another reporting um, uh, resp- responsibility that we, uh, you know, issuers will have to do. Uh, how is the FRC and your team preparing for this? We feel like we've been preparing for it for, for years and years. It was somewhat of a relief when the, uh, when the government response uh, came out. So I'll, I'll just try to give you a an overview of, of what we're doing and some of the issues that we're wrestling with. I should say that some issues um, will still re- require primary legislation and there isn't a bill slot yet for this work. So, you know, there will be more work down the line and when the um, when Bayes get uh, the opportunity to bring forward a bill, there'll be uh, some primary legislation which will make us fully transfer and Argo will become a real thing. But we're, you know, we can do a lot with secondary legislation. So the things that we're looking at at the moment, um, um, audit committee minimum standards, that's something that we're working on at the minute. Um, Not my team, but another team within the FRC. Um, We'll be creating an environment where audit committees can do more to engage with investors because that theme again, and the um, audit committee will be asked to do do more and maybe engage at least once a year and and maybe seek some assurance. So that's all around the audit and assurance plan that will be coming in in the near future. There'll be revisions to all the guidance that we put out there. So guidance on audit committees, guidance on risk and internal controls, etc. That's what we're looking at. I think there'll be no formal US SOX regime. You know, I think Different views on that, you know, um, FRC are on record of saying that's an opportunity potentially missed, uh, could have done more, but actually we'll be looking at the code to see whether we can put some of that into the corporate governance code. So we'll be looking at risk in their internal controls and, and seeing what systems that we can we can suggest within the code. And also, you know, we'll be thinking about uh, malice and clawback. That's something that the government talked about. They want to us to be a bit more robust in that area in the corporate governance code and much wider uh, there'll be wider powers to for our company reporting team to look at reporting throughout the code so normally they look at the financials and they write to companies about um, where they see uh, reporting could be improved but when there is 
legislation in place, they'll be writing to companies about issues relating to the front part of the um, report and accounts. So they'll be t- talking about governance issues, section 172 issues, whether the front and the back of the report actually link together, because we already know from some of the reporting on TCFDs and climate that great um, comments are made in the front part of the report about what companies are going to do. And then when you look at the financials, it doesn't always uh, link together in a coherent way. So there'll be more work on that. Um, And we expect the FRC to be given powers in in relation to uh, a wider range of directors. Currently, um, the FRC is only able to bring prosecutions against directors who have an accounting um, or members of an accounting profession. Uh, will be given powers we expect across the whole uh, across the whole all directors, uh, particularly in terms of fraudulent cases, things like that. So that's the kind of rattle through the areas uh, that we're looking at. Um, I can talk about the corporate governance code and the t- likely timings if that would be useful. Oh yes, I I think that would be very useful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what 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 we're working on at the minute is. Um, informal consultation towards the end of this year. So we've got to work out where any changes to the code might impact on the resilience statement that we know is coming coming in. Uh, The viability statement that's already in the code, will that simply disappear? Will it be a watered down viability statement? How will that work with the uh, resilience statement? The new standards for audit committees, you know, if you look at part four of the UK Corporate Governance Code, there's lots about audit committees in there. So we'll need to determine how much of that we keep, how much we point to the new standards, where there's duplication. So there's work there to be done. Um, So the idea is informal consultation towards the end of the year on many of these issues with a formal consultation early next year. That's what we're thinking at the minute. some of this might depend on whether we see draft secondary legislation from Bayes, which will allow some of the issues that we're talking about um, to be to, to link up with our changes to the code. Um, but we'd hope to get it all done by the end of next year. That's the current plan. It might change, <laughs> but that's well, where we are at the minute. <laughs> well, certainly the um, uh, you know for our members, our head members be keeping in touch with you on that and around the timetable yeah we will be putting out a document um next month i think that sets this out in a much more formal way so this all i'm giving you is our latest thinking at this moment in time and 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 with those potential changing you're talking on those areas of looking around the code and what what might this mean for reporting you know, would it become quite extended or would it be more succinct? And, you know, you, you know, feel like you have to include everything, including the kitchen sink, just to make sure that. But how, how much, as, yeah, I mean, as an ex, you know, a shareholder reading the annual report, albeit, you know, we are pushing for electronic uh, um, version. It's still mm. pretty heavy reading. It's very heavy reading, and my team reads such a lot of it <laughs> every year. It's it's quite a it's quite a task. We recognise this, and I know that there's some work going on to try and simplify some elements um, of reporting going forward. Uh, the FRC did its project on that last year, and I think there's still a lot of work going on to try and see where we can simplify things. I'm quite keen for the code to try and tighten it up a little bit. So, 
you know, there'll be things that we have to change, but there might be areas where we can be a bit more specific about what we want. So we can just say, this is exactly what we want to achieve this provision or this principle and try and get rid of some of the kind of extra disclosures that are not always necessary. Also better use of signposting, you know, we, we see, and I'm sure everybody on this call knows that, you know, annual reports have the same paragraphs cut and pasted in various different places. So that again, to your point, everything's covered where it should be. So I think signposting is really important to get that right. You know, if it's in the section 172 statement, does it need to be in the governance statement? You know, if it's in diversity piece, does it again have to be in governance? So it's really thinking about how this fits together and getting the right bits of information in that report so that everybody can say, well, if I'm looking at this, I'll find it there. If I'm looking at something else, I'll find it there. And I'm really trying to, to, to keep it, you know, clear and as succinct as possible. Good. Thank you for that. So moving I'll on try. from <laughs> <laughs> we, we can only try as as uh, as code sex. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, moving on, let's let's um for touch on a little bit um on ESG reporting and, and its requirements. And I'm going to let you off a bit, uh, Maureen, so you can take a, you can have a, a bit of a drink. I'm coming to you, uh, Courtney. Um, most companies have now set environmental, social, and sustainability targets. Are these the most, in the most part, genuine targets, or are companies only greenwashing in their annual reports without any real measure changes to back it up? I mean, got, coming towards um, what Maureen's saying about meaningful. Um, um, and, and transparent uh, uh, reporting. W what's your view on this, Courtney? Oh, another great question and another really hot topic at the moment. ESG is, a, is part of a concept that's been around for quite a while now. Um, it was previously covered under corporate social responsibility, um, otherwise known as CSR. Many businesses saw it as a box ticking exercise, exercise. And let's be honest, there's quite a bit of bending about of quite vague terminology, trying to appear, appear um, environmentally friendly, but with not much to back it up. Um, but I think that's changing now. Um, companies know that what invest, investors want is um, genuine sustainability with real targets and actual evidence to back up any claims. Um, and the targets are a lot more defined now. Um, in October last year, the government published um, Greening Finance, a, a roadmap to um, sustainable investing, which helps companies to deliver a more sustainable future. And it um, outlines steps to help consumers to better judge the sustainability characteristics of products and firms, which is helpful. The government's also recently made changes to company law, uh, which affects the UK's largest companies, including private companies with more than 500 employees and a 500 million or above turnover. Um, and under the new rules, uh, which are set out in the company's strategic report, Climate-Related Financial Disclosure Regulations 2022, um, the companies are required to state in their annual reports what they have produced, uh, whether they have produced um, TCFD task force on, on climate-related financial disclosures, or explain why they haven't done it. And the F FCA has also committed to challenging firms where it sees evidence of potential greenwashing and to take further action as appropriate. So investors will be expecting to see genuine ESG metrics in management and annual bonus targets as well, and that will have an, an impact. Um, so I think there's less scope for greenwashing now that the targets are more 
more defined um, and investors and companies are more informed. Good, and, and a lot of guidance on that. So it feels like you haven't got any excuse. Exactly. Um, so although the, the, the focus um, on the environmental aspect of ESG, um, you know, it seems to be on issuers, um, what I call the operating issuers, um, there doesn't seem to be a specific re regulatory re obligations for investment trusts um, to make disclosures on sustainability. Are you finding that they are choosing to do so voluntarily? Yeah, well, sustainability is definitely becoming one of the most prominent topics with investors. Um, and for investment companies, it's mainly associated with the actual process of investing and how it impacts climate change. Um, so as the AIC has said, investment companies are particularly suitable for ESG investing, actually, um, because they have a close-ended structure. Uh, so that means that they don't have to sell assets when investors sell their shares in the company. Um, so they're able to take a longer term view of their investments and invest in assets that have positive social or environmental impacts. They're also governed by an independent board of directors. Um, so that helps to ensure accountability. Um, and they're also listed companies, so they're quite transparent. Um, so investors will want to ensure that they have access to clear and genuine information to enable them to make important decisions um, on what they want to invest in. And I think investment trusts are aware of this and they're starting to respond to it by choosing to make the disclosures wherever they can. Um, but the disclosures are currently free form uh, with companies themselves left to decide what information investors will find most useful. Um, so I think these will only improve with time. Mm, okay, so one to keep an eye on, isn't it? I appreciate that we're, we're not through with this year's AGMC um, and we're a little bit over halfway through. Are there any insights as to how proxy advisors' recommendation have been influenced by the new rules? Definitely. Um, all the uh, proxy voting advice I've seen so far has mentioned um, the ESG reporting um, and just as a couple of examples, IVIS has said that um, companies should provide a statement in the annual report that the directors have considered the relevance um, of the risks of climate change and the transition risks associated with achieving the goals of the Paris Agreement when they're preparing and signing off the company's accounts. As another example, PERC has also said that it expects companies to provide a summary of their environmental approach and their goals and performance within the annual report and accounts. Um, and they recommend including disclosures about corporate strategy um, as it relates to environmental issues and to provide environmental data, including things like energy consumption, um, greenhouse gas emissions, water consumption, waste, and whether or not they actually use environmental audits. Um, so I think it's quite clear that proxy voting agencies are expecting to see these types of disclosures. Just, um, I think we just need to move on from this, but um, for those wanting to get more details on ESG reporting, we are running a training course on the 4th of October. Details are available on our uh, website um, through the, um, the head channel. Um, so please have a look and if you're interested, please register. So just moving on from um, sort of like, um, um, ESG and then in a way this 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 whole sustainability and sort of the environment is connected. Obviously the you know the the war in Ukraine, Ukraine sadly continues. Um, UK has joined 
with the US and EU in imposing unprecedented sanctions on Russia in response to its full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Um, this has included measures against the central bank and financial sectors and the targeting the targeted asset freezes of individuals and companies. So Jay, coming to you, um, with the, the list of sanctions um, growing, what is Link Group doing to review those lists and, and you know, keeping issuer clients compliant? Well, well, to be honest, I, I imagine it's rather like painting the fourth bridge. Um, the sanctions list is, is currently the largest I think it's ever been uh, and requires us at Link to review each of the registers uh, for matches on a regular basis. So clearly, that's an enormous task. It requires um, dedicated resource. So given the size, what we have done at Link is, is built dedicated programs and processes that sweep the registers. Uh, we extract the output uh, of any matches. Um, and where there's a high degree of confidence of a match, uh, we then talk to our, our issuer companies um, about what the next steps are uh, and what needs to be done. Uh, as, re as regards encoding the register with restrictions, for example, to prevent any movement or the payment of dividends and the like. So, yeah, I mean, just to recap that, the list is growing all the time. So every change needs to be reviewed. There's a regular review process of the existing stuff as well, because we what you don't want to happen is someone on the sanctions list suddenly appears on the register having not been there before so we need to check for that too uh, and that is an ongoing process it's turned it almost into a, its own little cottage program and so how do the sanctions lists impacts on nominees company and and the intermediate investor model then jay oh that's that is a really important question actually because the registrars and the issuer um as you know would have limited if any visibility at all of the complete intermediated chain. So amongst all of that intermediated chain, we've got layer after layer after layer of investor until you get to that end one. And that end investor could have been could have could be a sanctioned entity. Um, but of course the custodians and the nominees and the banks themselves are also bound by the sanctions uh, list requirements and, and they too will be scanning their memberships for matches. So it's incumbent on them. To, to advise where they find uh, a match. Now, if they are identified, um, those nominees, the banks, the custodians, they'll need to impose restrictions to prevent any economic benefit, uh, which will include, I suppose, the payment of dividends, exercise of voting rights, etc. So what that means is, is that at the nominee or the custodian level or the sub-custodian level uh, a restriction might be applied, which we might not know about as the registrar and as the issuer company. And, and I, you know, I think it's incumbent on actually the nominee or the, the sub-custodian to, to actually report that they have found a, a sanctioned entity. And when they do, and if they do, um, we and the issuer will make changes to the register for that whole entity to restrict that part of the shareholding that uh, would be subject to, to the sanction. So the, the, there would be no uh, economic benefit to be passed through the chain in relation to that sanctioned individual. So it's quite a complex process. Uh, it requires all of the 
uh, intermediaries, all of the steps in the chain to, to, to follow the, the sanctions list and the processes and procedures that, that are required and governed to, to identify uh, any sanctioned entities. Uh, and where that all happens and all comes together, and it does, um, that, uh, that those, those restrictions are put on the register. It, as I said at the, at the very beginning of this, it's a, um, the sanctions list is growing to an enormous rate. It's uh, it, gone are the days where one or two entries would be made ever so often, um, and, and those could be checked through on a periodic basis. This is a daily occurrence. This requires daily uh, feeds into our system, extracts to be provided, monitoring, compliance, uh, auditing and the work. So as I say, it's, it's become uh, a very important function for the registrar to ensure that companies and issuers remain compliant and don't pass any benefit to any sanctioned entity uh, that they would otherwise be, be benefiting from. So in a long roundabout sort of way, Cathy, um, we're doing everything we can to help companies and support companies in, in their obligations. We work with our with our peers and and uh, the market infrastructure generally to ensure that everyone remains compliant. And then you know what, Jay? Absolutely, it sounds too complex for my my head to get around this. I'm so glad you are our registrars, honestly, Jay, and that the registrars you guys are on board on this. Thank you. Um, so uh, you know, Courtney, coming over to you, yeah, you know, from a COSEC perspective. What are the responsibilities of governance professions in, um, uh, you know, in relation to these sanctions? Sounds a lot easier, actually, than uh, what Jay has to do over <laughs> on his side. Um, the CGI has recently published some really good guidance on this, which is super helpful. Responsibilities for the company secretary include things like raising the issue with the chair and the board um, to check that they're informed about the issues. Um, including reputational issues, given the heightened political and public interest in this at the moment. Um, as Jay mentioned, um, it's important to check sanctions against the share register and especially important for listed companies um, and to make use of Section 793 of the Companies Act um, to identify whether there are any shareholders who are prescribed individuals if you um, don't already know about these shareholders. Companies should also be encouraged to arrange an exercise to be carried out to identify underlying assets held by Russian individuals, banks and entities. Um, and the board should be reminded that breaching sanctions carries a potential criminal sentence and DNO insurance won't cover them for that. So this is really important stuff. Um, governance professionals need to pay close attention to the situation as it evolves. Um, make sure that they're checking for any updates um, and support their chair, CEO and board. Good. All really good uh, advice, um, Courtney. Um, so uh, moving on from sanctions, and um, I think we, we've got a couple of minutes um, before we go into the Q&A session. I think uh, at the beginning, I mentioned about some reforms um, to companies' house that's come through, Courtney. Um, could you give us a an executive summary of what's happening and maybe you know some practical implications for for us governance professionals sure well you might remember in 2019 um base published a consultation on reforms to companies house um it was to tackle fraud and money laundering um but at the time it noted that the transformations would take several years to deliver and were unlikely to happen until 2022 at the very earliest well, finally, in March, the government published a white paper um, setting out its response to the consultations. 
and it laid down the government's plans for the overhaul of Companies House, changing it actually quite significantly from quite a passive receiver of data. Um, it now has it will be given a much more active role in verifying the data and uh, maintaining its reliability. Um, so the government plans to introduce um, compulsory verification for all new and existing comp uh, company directors um, and people with significant control, otherwise known as PSCs, um, as well as introducing a ban on corporate directors. Um, so those that set up, manage and control companies and other entities will have a verified identity with Companies House um, or they will need to be registered and verified uh, with an anti-money laundering um, supervising uh, third party agent. So this will make anonymous filings harder and it will discourage uh, those that are wishing to hide their company ownership through nominees or uh, really opaque corporate structures. Um, but particular implications for company secretaries will be um, that we need to start thinking of Companies House as more of a gatekeeper uh, to information rather than just a passive recipient. Um, we should be organizing the verification of the identity of directors and PSCs. Uh, we'll need to review any corporate director arrangements to ensure they meet the new requirements. Um, and at this stage, it's still unclear on what basis information might actually be removed or declined by Companies House and how thorough um, checks on the information will be. But the government has said that it will introduce legislation to Parliament uh, to effect the reforms in the coming months. So it should be coming up fairly soon. Um, and it's part of a wider package of uh, legislative proposals to tackle, tackle illicit finance. Um, but this is a big deal. This is being described as the biggest change to Companies House since its formation. So watch this space. Definitely want to watch this space, guys. And um, now we move on to our Q&A session. Um, I think we've got about nine minutes, guys, so no pressure. Um, we've got a, a, quite a lot of questions. So I'm just Got a scrolling through it. Oh, here's the one probably for you, Courtney, from a COSEC and maybe Maureen um, from a reporting perspective, just for next next season's reporting. We got a question here um, asking what key questions for the second half of 2022 should should COSEC be asking on the board? What should the board be be focused on for, for the second half of 2022? Well, I mean, I guess it depends on your year end, but absolutely, um, what are we doing about um, diversity on the board? Um, how we're going to handle that? Um, what plans do we have in place? Um, how we're going to report on it? Um, and and also ESG, the other big topic. Um, what are we doing about that? Um, we need some really robust explanations if we're not complying with all of these things. Um, so I think if you haven't already brought them up with your board, they should be on the top of the agenda going forward this year. Yeah, I'd echo that. I'd, I'd also talk about um, net zero and climate being very specific issues that, that investors are looking at really carefully at the minute. Lots of discussions about whether there should be a vote on climate uh, and things like that. I don't think we're going there at the minute, but I think the more companies kind of put their head above the parapet on these issues and are transparent and have robust processes in place, then the less likely it is that there'll be... Um, more rigid requirements uh, placed on them. So I would say, yeah, all the ESG issues, definitely. And, and I would always say, remember to tell your company story. Um, tell them, you know, tell the board that it's important that you, you, you don't follow the herd. Tell, tell them exactly what it's like for your company. Okay. Just a follow-up question on, on the ESG bits, you know. 
given the current economic background in, in the UK and, you know, the possible recession and so forth, do you anticipate that the social element of ESG will become more prominent and could be the, at the detriment of the current focus on the E? I can talk a little bit about that, Kathy. Um, so, yes, the social aspect absolutely will become more prominent, and we're already seeing this. Um, I have seen letters from institutional investors um, saying that they will be focusing on the Modern Slavery Act and companies' modern slavery statements. And I think it's really important. It, it should be focused on. Um, do I think it will be to the detriment of the E? I don't think so, because that's another really big topic. Um, and it's something that companies and investors are really, really keen to get right. Um, so I think they'll both be big topics going forward. Um, and Maureen, do you agree? Absolutely. I mean, you know, the, the S, you know, when we were in the pandemic, the efforts that companies put into their workforce, um, much more work on diversity. Interesting you mentioned modern slavery because we looked at that last year and there's lots and lots of work to be done there. And I think it's really important that to recognise that these are not trade-offs. The things that, that is important to everybody, you know, you, you don't trade off the E with the S or the G with the E and the S. It, the governance brings you to the E and the S. And if you get the E and the S right and you've got go strong governance, then you'll be a, a strong company. Um, if you start to fail on governance and don't have the right processes in place, then whatever you do in some, on some of these issues, it, it's going to fail anyway. So I don't think it's a, an option. I think you've got to do as much as you can in all the areas, unfortunately. But, but fortunately. <laughs> I, think I was just going to add, you know, a, a small addition to the, the, the S versus the E versus the G is the soft launch of the dormant assets, the expansion of the dormant assets scheme later this year with a with a further release, uh, a wider release, uh, release in 2023. And I think a lot of companies will find that they need to start thinking about um, how best that they can socialise the, um, the, the dormancy that they find within their registers. Um, the beauty about the dormant asset scheme in many ways and what companies can do either to participate or otherwise is it ticks all the boxes. There's a good environmental message here. There's a great social message here. It's good governance to make sure the register's up to date. So I think in answer to your earlier question about what companies might need to think about towards the back end of this year, um, that's going to be it's a small it's a small part. It's a small thing to think about. But I think what's going to happen in the future is the, the larger investors are going to start pushing for what are you doing about your dormancy within the register? How are you best uh, utilising either outstanding funds or relocating or reallocating those funds to either back to the original investor or, or for good causes? So we're going to see a little bit more about that later this year. One on the watch list, Jay. Since you've, you've appeared to me, Jay, there's a question actually for you. <laughs> um, and um, maybe Courtney as well, if you'd like to jump in, is... Do you think the re-emergence of action by Extinction Rebellion at recent AGMs will impact on the future directions of AGMs and could have an adverse impact on the wider shareholder engagement at AGMs? Yeah, um, it's, a, it's a great question. I think demonstrations at AGMs are a, are a serious concern for companies, not only in terms of the disruption it causes, but actually the health and safety of the whole event. I mean, if these are if these are outside of the event, I you know I guess providing it's properly policed, then um, I don't honestly see much of an issue with it. But it's when it 
comes into the actual event, it causes a real problem. And companies will be thinking about it. I'm sure, you know, if we can have a virtual meeting, uh, if our articles permit and, and we can get over that, the place of the meeting issue, then then actually that resolves a lot of those problems. The, the, the activists are not going to be able to, to be as visual as they would like to be. Um, hybrid will help, um, obviously. Uh, will it will it uh, impact on engagement? No, I don't think it should. I think uh, companies need to engage with shareholders. The right thing to do. Shareholders should be engaging with companies too, in fairness, and and a lot aren't. And if companies are, are doing the right thing, uh, you know they're, they're you know they're, they're doing the right environmental stuff. They're they're, they're approaching on an absolutely uh, full speed ahead on net zero uh, objectives, then then actually these type of demonstrations won't affect them. So, you know, it's, it's a very simplistic view, I know, but uh, I, th- I think, yes, companies are probably concerned about some of these uh, demonstrations, especially the extractive companies, the oils and the rest, but um, there, there are ways to mitigate it, I think. Okay. Thanks, Jay. Look, we've only got a minute left to um, to our session to and we've got many questions that are pouring in. So uh, we could talk all day, right? Um, but we're coming up to lunchtime. Um, people will probably want to stretch their legs and, and go out. Um, those who travel into office um, will go out and pop if there's any shop to get a sandwich. Um, questions that we haven't answered, we're going to get our um, the responses sent back to you guys um, from our um, expert speakers. Um, but just to... Um, kind of wrap it up um can you know Maureen can you do a quick summary a key takeaway from this session and I invite Courtney and Jade uh, the same from your side I think there's a lot going on and I think we've mentioned a lot of those key takeaways you know ESG reporting is something that everybody's got to look at and I would just say what I, I said a minute ago be succinct um try and think about the impacts of your reporting not just the processes so where the processes lead to an impact and an output that is very much what we want to see um, and again tell the story of the company okay courtney uh yeah just to repeat what i said earlier um so far this year board diversity and esg have been the hot topics with directors in the boardroom and with investors and proxy facing agencies Um, So I think these topics will be around for a long time and gone are the days when a simple explanation will suffice. Investors are expecting more and they will wield their power by uh, voting against the re-election of key players on the board when there's non-compliance or a watertight explanation to back it up. So it's more important than ever for company secretaries to keep up with the guidance as it evolves and it is evolving um, and to raise the issues with the board um, as soon as possible uh, so that they have time to ensure that they've taken substantial steps to address any issues. Okay, thank you. Jay? I think thus far we, we, we're seeing a continuance of the change uh, that we witnessed over the last few years with the move to the digital process, more digital. Um, that's going to likely increase uh, with better infrastructure, I think, uh, as we move forward and, and better shoulder engagement. Um, dare I mention dematerialisation? Uh, uh, that, that, that is being spoken about a bit more now. Uh, that's going to greatly impact digitalisation when it, when it arrives. No doubt we'll have to look at DLT and blockchain solutions. Um, so how will they feature, if at all? Um, and there's going to be deliberations happening on that over the coming months and years, I suspect. Um, all in all, we're in for a period of all change, I think. OK, thank you, Jay. 
Well, look, all that remains for me to say is a big thank you to our expert speakers and to everyone watching us uh, from the comfort of their home or at the office, if you made it through, uh, managed to get a train in today. Um, we will be sending out a follow-up email with today's recordings, as well as details of our next events, which is not far off. Um, so look out for that, which will be hitting your inbox shortly. Um, last thing for me to say is have a great day, and I hope to see some of you in person at the CGI conference in a couple of weeks. Bye-bye. And that is a wrap. Thank you to all our speakers for some really interesting insights. And thanks to you for listening. If you want to take part in future events, I've left a link in the description. You can also subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to us on. That way, you won't miss an upload. Take care.